Romans 1, 16 and 17, after his uh, introductory comments writing to the Romans, he sounds the theme. It, it's, uh, it's equivalent to uh, uh, Beethoven's, is the Beethoven's ninth, do, 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 do. you know, once that sounded, the theme has begun and now the symphony is on. The key to understanding these two verses, um, I would suggest to you and so would Luther, is the word righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is mentioned, and the word righteous comes up again. What does the word righteous mean? Let's unpack this a little bit. I'm going to check in with you on what I think the common understanding of the word righteous or righteousness means, and as we will see, I think it, our common understanding gets in the way a little bit. Uh, see if these impressions are accurate as I go through this. But I need a volunteer to help us visualize this. What do you say, Dan? You up for it? I just think you'd be a good volunteer for this. I haven't even talked to Dan ahead of time. Could be Dan, if Dan is, uh, is up to it. Come on up, Dan. Yeah, come on up. All right, let's hear it for Dan. Good job. Running man, Dan. Okay. Stand right in front of that crate and await my further. We, we need somebody to be a symbol of righteousness. And I, for some reason, thought of Dan. <laughs> okay, stand in front of the crate, Dan. And um, first of all, righteous means um, kind of a quality or qualities, right? Pure and holy. As the word would suggest, Right. Someone who is righteous is morally and spiritually pure and right. So, Dan, I'd like to have you uh, put the halo on your head because indeed you are pure <laughs> and holy. That was made for Dan Roth. Okay, secondly, righteousness tells us about power. One who is righteous is, um, in very important ways, superior to those uh, around him or her in the, in the moral and spiritual sense, and has the power, therefore, to judge others out of that superiority. So, I'd like you to grab that gavel to symbolize righteousness as the power to judge. <laughs> he kind of likes this one. <clears throat> Thirdly, Righteousness tells us about our relationship and proximity to others. Usually, a righteous person is not, oh, how shall we put it, one of the gang. Not so down to earth, really. They are set apart, perhaps distant, perceived to be above the rest of us. Dan, would you... Mount the podium, please, and take your appropriate... <laughs> it'll support you, I think. Okay. He's above us. He is righteous. <laughs> Lastly, when someone believes they are all these things, <laughs> they take... They adopt a certain attitude, right? A certain attitude. Morally and spiritually pure, better than the rest of us capacity and willingness to judge, perhaps even be judgmental. We sometimes say that a person like that is self-righteous. 
and it's usually not a good thing. Now I want you, Dan, to look self-righteous with your facial expression, with your body language, if you might, really proud, better than others. <laughs> See, I got the right guy. All right. Is this not a symbol, the paragon of righteousness, Dan Ra? Let's give Dan a hand. All right. You can put the stuff down, but get ready because uh, at the end of the sermon, I'm going to bring you back up again as we bring our lesson full circle. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, you can head back. The Bible often talks about the righteousness of God, including our lesson today. And one thing's for sure. Now, if, if, you know, we've had some fun with this. If anyone deserves to be called righteous, it's, of course, God. I recognize that. We all do. He's the real deal, right? But the trouble is, from where we sit in this life of ours, the righteousness of God, as we understand it, doesn't necessarily do us much good. In fact, maybe on the contrary. It may just confirm uh, the image that many of us have as God, of God as a judge who must be exceedingly displeased and angry with us for just screwing up all the time and just generally being not very righteous and pure and holy, etc., etc. As a result, I think the image that many people have of God might be something like this. Yeah, you'll be seeing that in your nightmares, huh? For many years, Martin Luther saw God this way, although I, I don't think the American flag probably was a part of his image. Martin Luther, for the uninitiated, uh, was the founder of the Reformation and the Lutheran movement. But before he started the Reformation, he was a Roman Catholic monk and a scholar. He tried very hard to be as good and pleasing to God as he could be, like all the other monks and many other faithful people. But he felt he was never good enough. You ever feel that way? That you're supposed to be better somehow than you are, but you, you know you're not? Well, Martin Luther knew what went on in his own heart and his thoughts and his motivations. And even if on the outside he looked every bit the good monk and holy monk, he knew what he knew the bottom line, that God was righteous and he most certainly was not. And this tormented him, not only because he felt inadequate, but because he felt, um, well, he was frankly bracing for the punishment that he fully expected from God. How could it be otherwise? Luther often read and taught his students the verse that we read today, especially 16 and 17, the talk about the righteousness of God. But privately, Luther wrote about what he really thought about the righteousness of God. This is good stuff. Listen as I, uh, as I quote Luther. I hated this phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand, that God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. But I, who however blamelessly I lived as a monk, felt myself to be a sinner before God with a deeply troubled conscience and could not rely on being reconciled through the satisfaction I could carry out myself. I did not love, no, hated the just God who punishes sinners, wrote Luther, and I silently rebelled against God 
that God should threaten us with his righteousness and his anger. Even in the same sentence or verse that he talks about the gospel. What's with the righteousness? Luther then went on to recall that as he was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17 over and over again, haunted by it really, he read these words as if for the very first time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And suddenly it hit Luther. And this is, this is the big deal. The righteousness of God is not the holy sledgehammer. It's the gospel message. The realization, the reality that God doesn't want to destroy us, but he wants to save us, for crying out loud. Because he loves us. I mean, after all, he created us, right? So God's righteousness is not God's perfection that drives him to destroy that which is imperfect, you know, namely all of us. Rather, God's righteousness is God's heart. His capacity and his willingness to reconnect us to himself in a life-giving, life-saving relationship through faith and faith alone. The merciful God even makes us righteous through faith, wrote Luther, by giving it away. Powerful stuff. Luther's insight absolutely transformed his life, turned it around, and his insight meant that the righteousness of God in Romans 1 and elsewhere means close to the opposite of what had been assumed for centuries, but what Paul originally meant, namely... God's power not to condemn, but to give life. To give life. And of course, it is that very life and that promise that is given that we celebrate in baptism in just a, a few minutes with four of the smallest and youngest of us. That's what baptism means. In Luther's epiphany, he realized that the righteousness of God is, and this is from verse 16, the righteousness is the power of God for salvation. A very different meaning. And put simply, the Reformation was born with this insight. And as many historians have suggested, Luther is second only to Jesus of Nazareth for his impact on the history of the Western world. So rather than a God, that guy's still up there? Okay, let's get, the, uh, let's get the picture of the Jesus with the, there we go. That's what we're talking about. That is the heart of God. That is the righteousness of God that gives life to children. So rather than a God who is above us, distant and aloof from us, this God through Jesus of Nazareth has come down to our level. As Paul points out in Philippians, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself of power, taking the form of a servant. This is the gospel message. This is the righteousness of God. No pedestal here. 
This God emptied himself of power and joined us where we are. God shows up where we live and we receive this God in faith. Rather than keeping all his righteousness to himself, this God gives his righteousness away to us, the heart of God, counting us as righteous, even though, of course, we on our own are not. That doesn't change. But he gives it away, gives it away. So the righteousness we have is not our own. It never is. It is given, never something that we can claim or stand on a pedestal and be proud that we are such and such. And it frees us for life and for meaningful work, which is also a part of our salvation right here and right now. It's been called by a Lutheran um, theologian the happy exchange. I love this. Happy exchange, which is we are given the riches of Christ, and what does Christ receive in return? All of our yuckiness, our sin, our darkness, our brokenness. That's a happy exchange. And we receive this we receive this through the gift of faith and faith alone. For this reason, the idea that God's attributes and riches are at work on our behalf, so not just something that God keeps to himself, but puts to work in our lives for our sake. Luther wrote this of that new insight. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Okay, this is one more Luther quote, and then we're, we're going to get out of here. Okay, this is Luther again. Then I had the feeling that straight away I was born again and had entered through the open doors into paradise itself. The whole scripture revealed a different countenance to me. I then went through the whole scriptures in my memory and compared analogy, analogies and other work in us. Okay, and here's, here's the part I like. The power of God through which God makes us powerful. The wisdom of God through which he makes us wise. The strength of God through which he makes us strong, the salvation of God, the glory of God, etc. And then Luther writes, as I had hated the phrase, the righteousness of God before, now I valued it with equal love as the word which was sweetest to me, because he knew that righteousness was for him. Now, just to make sure that you get the picture of what I'm talking about, I'd like to bring Dan back up here, just to drive this whole thing home. Run, Forrest, run. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go right back to where we were. Let's reconstruct the righteous wonder and wrath. Okay, so we've got, uh, we've got the halo on and the gavel and you're on the pedestal. Okay, this, this is what righteousness, you know, used to mean or we think it means or whatever. Here's what righteousness, righteousness means in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Step off the pedestal. Put the gavel down. And now God takes the halo off. And now take it with you. Take the, take the halo with you. And he walks down to someone in the front row and gives the halo of righteousness. Could be anyone. And now to someone different, Dan will extend the peace of God to that person. Anyone. Finally, Dan, symbol of righteousness, standing in for God's own righteousness, takes his seat among us.
And this is the righteousness that we cling to in faith. A righteousness that is with us and for us and life-giving to us. Amen. Let's hear it for Dan. Thanks. Good job, man.